Good evening and welcome to another edition of the CNS Guidelines podcast. My name is Brad Elder. I am neurosurgery faculty at The Ohio State University and I am host of the Guidelines podcast. Tonight, our topic is non-functioning pituitary adenoma guidelines. And we have the pleasure of welcoming two uh, authors of the guidelines, uh, Dr. Gabriel Zada and Dr. Manish Agi, uh, to our podcast tonight. In addition, we have a uh, resident co-host helping me out tonight, Dr. Uh, Rushi Joshi. So we should have a great topic. I'm excited to uh, hear more about the process and what the authors found in their in the process of putting together their guidelines section should be a great learning experience. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Agi. Thank you, uh, Brad. Um, so my name is Manish Agi. I'm a pituitary neurosurgeon at UC San Francisco, and it was an honor to uh, lead a multidisciplinary task force that published these guidelines in 2016. Um, This was actually the culmination of a a large team effort that spanned uh, about two years of work, um, during which we sought to uh, assemble the literature on non-functioning pituitary adenomas published between 1966 and 2014. Um, And we sought to answer seven topics of importance. The topics included preoperative evaluation of these patients with non-functional pituitary adenomas, the primary treatment of the tumors, the treatment options for residual tumors after surgery, and the postoperative patient management. And then we broke down the preoperative evaluation into further detail by focusing on three aspects, imaging, laboratory evaluation, and ophthalmologic evaluation. And then uh, for treatment, we focused on surgery, medication, and radiation, um, as well as the natural history of untreated tumors and surgical technologies that can be incorporated into the operating room. Uh, And then lastly, for residual tumor treatment, we study the literature comparing radiation observation versus reoperation. And this was, as I mentioned, a multidisciplinary effort, but the majority of our team was neurosurgeons. So I'm thrilled to be joined today by my colleague, Gab Zada, who led several of the chapters, and we're gonna have him comment on two topics of in, that were of particular interest to him, preoperative endocrine evaluation, as well as the primary management of these patients. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Manish, and thank you, Brad and Rushi and to the CNS um, for the opportunity to review these guidelines. Um, I, I couldn't agree more, Manish. My favorite thing about this is that we were able to work with um, not just neurosurgeons, but endocrinologists and ophthalmologists and radiologists to, um, to make these guidelines happen. Um, and as you know, they take several years to put together. So Manish um, really led this fantastic effort um, and they get outdated pretty quickly too because they were from 2016, but I'm um, still being used. So um, we thought it would be interesting uh, to, to cover a couple of the topics and really spend more time. So um, I'd like to spend a little time on the um, endocrine evaluation. And, and this particular investigation was led by Maria um, Flesseru, who is a, um, a very uh, um, uh, collegial uh, neuroendocrinologist based out of um, uh, Oregon. And, uh, and they did a, a systematic review of the literature to answer the question of um, what, what is the value of um, preoperative laboratory assessment in patients with suspected non-functioning pituitary adenomas. So these are usually tumors that are macroadenomas on, on diagnosis. That means greater than 10 millimeters in maximal diameter. And you don't always know what they are before you're requesting labs. So the question is, what labs should I 
get um, if I see a macroadenoma and there's no obvious evidence of things like Cushing's disease or, or acromegaly. And so um, Dr. Flesseru um, reviewed 29 studies that met inclusion criteria and there were no class one randomized controls, but they still found um, a, a, a lot of studies that met class two evidence. So that's one, one step below that. And um, they found that uh, between 37 and 85% of patients had some type of uh, pituitary um, uh, axis deficiency or hypopituitarism. Uh, the most common was growth hormone and then um, followed by the uh, hypogonadism or the sex hormones. Um, and then less so patients with adrenal or steroid insufficiency. Uh, and then finally, they also um, found that it's worth checking a full pituitary panel on these patients um, to check the prolactin level, which is perhaps the most important lab that we need to check uh, as neurosurgeons um, to see if there's any medical treatments available, but also to screen with an IGF-1 uh, for any occult acromegaly. Um, uh, and then there were some comments on some other tests. So um, I'm going to stop there, uh, and then um, and we can go into this in more detail, but um, those were the main uh, recommendations for, for neurosurgeons. Great. You also were going to review, I think, surgery as a, as a primary treatment. Do, do you want to go ahead and touch on that? Sure. I'm happy to do that as well. So um, those were those are the recommendations for endocrine evaluation. Um, and the other the other one that we felt was really key was led by my colleague um, Josh Lucas at USC, and so we wanted to review what the um, evidence was guiding the primary treatment of non-functioning adenomas, and these assessed vision vision based, endocrine based, headache related symptoms, and then responses to several types of therapy. Um, so not just surgery, but also um, consideration of radiation-based therapy or even trials of medical therapy uh, for, for non-functioning pituitary adenomas. And uh, 14 studies met inclusion criteria, which were all class two evidence. Uh, and um, the uh, essentially the major conclusion of this was that surgery had the most evidence um, guiding uh, the best outcomes um, in terms of visual improvement. So, um, so the, the, the most rapid way to get visual improvement uh, is, is surgical resection. Um, and uh, most patients improved with regard to vision between 75 and 90% uh, of patients. Um, uh, there were a couple studies suggesting the potential for observation or primary radiation-based treatment. However, this was significantly uh, less. Um, and uh, and one, um, one study looking at observation alone showed that tumor progression uh, occurred in 50% of patients with 20% ultimately require, requiring surgery. So um, there's a lot of evidence guiding surgery as a, as a primary treatment um, in, in patients, but um, there's still, um, uh, it has to be conveyed that selection is really important. So it doesn't mean that we should operate on every patient with, uh, with a non-functioning pituitary adenoma. So the, the usual criteria are a symptomatic tumor in an otherwise healthy person, um, uh, you know, one causing vision loss or hypopituitarism, and then on, on occasion, any growing tumor, especially when considering the age and the personal preference of the patient, um, get factored in as well. So um, I think those are important considerations that we need to kind of contextualize as well. You mentioned uh, that that uh, surgery as a as a treatment modality and the the resulting effects on vision, um, presumably in patients with experiencing so symptomatic experiencing some vision loss. What are there? Is it were there similar findings in terms of uh, you know pituitary dysfunction? I mean, do, you know, 
was, is surgery the best treatment? Um, it, was, this, was the evidence similar for, for those patients? No, the evidence was considerably less, and that's because not all patients experience improvements in pituitary axis that are failing after surgery. The good news is that very few patients get new pituitary axis failure following surgery, but um, many, many fail to improve as well. So it's not as robust as the data behind vision um, uh, in terms of recommending surgical intervention. But um, in terms of uh, things like hyperprolactinemia, um, that especially cause dysfunction in young women with regard to an amenorrhea galactria syndrome, there's a lot of evidence um, that that surgery um, can help quite a bit. Were, were there any, uh, I guess, downside was downsides to uh, surgery as primary treatment. Caveats to that is that you know you're you're a good chance of getting improvement in vision, but you you know you may notice some something that's worse afterwards. Or what what are the downsides? Sure, there's always the risk of um, new endocrine um, deficits and and uh, and the risks that come along with surgery. Although it's been shown that um, especially in high volume centers and tertiary care centers, that pituitary surgery should be safe. With, um, with very low um, complication rates of CSF, leak, um, uh, CSF leaks or meningitis or carotid artery injuries. And so, you know, Dr. Agi and I deal with this on, uh, essentially on a daily uh, or weekly basis. And, um, and so um, there are acceptable risks for most patients, but we always have to consider things like patient age and comorbidities and, and whether surgery is worthwhile. So um, we have to always uh, um, take it on, an, on a patient by patient basis, I think. Sure. Rushi, did you, I don't want to leave you out of this. Did you have any questions for Dr. Zada? No, I think that was great. Um, I think maybe one question that I had that maybe addressed is with respect to clinical symptoms of pituitary axis dysfunction, is there a component of chronicity of symptoms and whether or not patients will get better? And would that maybe suggest um, earlier evaluation in like a multidisciplinary pituitary endocrine clinic could help as far as getting um, resolution of symptoms postoperatively? Those are great questions. Um, I, I don't think that that was supported by the guidelines um, in any way, but I, um, I'd love to hear Dr. Agi's experience as well. In, in our center, we find that um, relatively new symptoms, such as newer headaches in adults who never experienced headaches in the past, obviously new hypopituitarism or, or vision loss, uh, that occur within several months, um, you know, those are patients that, uh, that can gain significant benefit um, from surgical intervention uh, um, uh, quite rapidly. Was that kind of your question, uh, Rushi? Or was yeah, that another one? That was helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think that the evidence is shown there in the guidelines. And there are, um, you know, not everyone has access to a tertiary pituitary center. There are, there are major disparities that occur. And, um, and uh, Dr. Agi's center at UCSF and our center have shown that that even um, you know, ins insurance status and, and variations between a private and safety net public hospital can be dramatic, especially with regard to presentation of symptoms. Um, there's more vision loss, larger, more invasive tumors, more apoplexy in the underserved populations, but um, that we've shown that um, you know, directed patient care and multidisciplinary care can kind of level that out to, to some degree, they can mitigate those disparities, but not fully. Awesome, thank you. Great discussion thus far. I want to turn it over to Dr. Agi. I think he has a couple topics within this topic that he was uh, going to discuss. Thanks, Brad. So I'm going to um, talk about what ended up being the last two of our seven um, topics. And the order of these was determined by, you know, what step in the 
um, in the decision-making process they fall in. So I'm going to start with surgical technologies because, you know, once you have this evidence that Dr. Zada cited uh, from our previous guidelines chapter supporting when surgery is indicated, um, the techniques and technologies was the next thing we looked at. And I want to give um, acknowledgement to John Quo from the University of Pennsylvania, who is the first author on this chapter. Um, John has been a pioneer in bringing a lot of technologies to the operating room for pituitary patients, particularly um, to aid in tumor visualization. Um, so for this guideline component of our guidelines, we had 56 studies meet the inclusion criteria and uh, just walking through an order, I will in introduce all this by saying everything that was supported was at the lowest possible level or level three, um, which is a challenge for all these guidelines. But starting with um, the first question our team asked was um, uh, whether uh, microscopic or endoscopic surgical approaches led to symptomatic relief. And the answer was at the level three that they both both approaches led to symptomatic relief. Keep in mind that the vast majority of the literature here is is focusing on symptoms of vision loss, as was alluded to, and so that we're better prepared to comment on that than we are on um, uh, hormonal improvement. Um, the next question we asked was related to the morbidity of uh, transphenoidal surgery for elderly patients, and we had level three evidence supporting transphenoidal surgery um, for non-functional pituitary adenoma surgery in ASA grade one to three elderly patients. Um, we also had level three evidence uh, stating that adequate bony exposure of the sphenoid and cellular regions was recommended to improve extent of resection. Um, we had level three evidence um, supporting endoscopic approaches relative to microscopic transphenoidal um, approaches for improved visualization of residual, and this was based on studies in which the endoscope would uh, reveal residual tumor after initial microsurgical approaches. Um, and keep in mind that this represents um, a cutoff date of 2014, and certainly since then, additional studies have come to support that practice. Um, we also had level three evidence in which uh, for select tumors that were highly invasive, a combined transphenoidal and transcranial approach could be endorsed. Um, and then the uh, other one we focused on was the last one for level three evidence was the use of intraoperative MRI. And certainly the level three evidence supported intraoperative MRI for um, uh, increasing your uh, extent of resection. Um, however, there uh, we could not recommend the practice of intraoperative MRI for pituitary surgery across the board because of a high false positive rate. Um, so even though there was a higher rate of gross total resection, there was some evidence to suggest that it could also lead to resection of normal gland, and it made it difficult within the context of the literature to have any recommendations. So we came out with insufficient evidence for intraoperative MRI. We also had insufficient evidence for a number of practices that are routinely used Keep in mind that this does not in any way indict the practice. It's merely to state that the literature couldn't um, support it relative to its absence. So neuro navigation um, could not be supported or refuted. Uh, and similarly, lumbar drain diversion for postoperative CSF leak reduction could not be supported or, or refuted. And there was no single dural closure technique that could be supported uh, or refuted, namely because the literature there was just so heterogeneous. Um, so that was what we had to say about surgical technologies and techniques. Um, and then really briefly, our final question was um, the management of residual or recurrent non-functional pituitary adenomas. 
And here, um, you know, the, the questions related to the use of radiation versus observation. And there was actually level two evidence in this case supporting uh, the use of radiosurgery or, and or radiation therapy for residual or recurrent non-functional pituitary adenomas to lower the risk of tumor progression. Um, when there was only small intracellular tumor, and again, with the literature couldn't give us a, a volumetric threshold, it was left to the judgment of the treating provider. But when this was small, serial neuroimaging studies were recommended. But when it was um, larger or uh, outside the cella, radiation was recommended. And the radiation practices that were recommended were single session radiosurgery at 12 or more gray when possible, or fractionated radiation uh, therapy up to 45 to 54 gray um, with control rates of 90% or higher at five years after treatment. And the level three evidence for the practice of recurrent or residual disease was to check proliferative index or ACTH staining for silent corticotrophic adenomas because these are a little more aggressive and would need um, uh, either closer observation or earlier use of adjuvant radiation. Um, repeat resection was recommended when recurrent or residual disease was symptomatic um, because the slow time of onset of radiation was not going to provide symptomatic relief, um, particularly since the most common symptom here will be vision loss. And then uh, radiation or radiosurgery at a level three um, uh, could be recommended um, for cases where the risk of repeat surgery was, uh, was considered high in the judgment of the surgeon. Um, so that was the, the final uh, chapter, and this was really an exciting effort, and I'll sort of turn it over uh, back to Brad and, and Rishi for questions. Oh, that was, that was a great summary. I, you know, I did have a few questions. Um, how do you decide if you if you're going to do radiation? How do you decide between a single fraction uh, radiation session versus fractionating? Um, so, it, in my experience, the biggest variable that comes into play is the proximity to the optic apparatus. Uh, that's variable number one. Then variable number two is the size of the target that you're treating. Um, so the target needs to be small enough combined with the distance of the optic apparatus that, that the nerve is not getting a toxic dose. Um, those are probably the, the two biggest considerations. Sure. And then for, for those patients who are getting radiation, in, the, in what you guys reviewed, is that primarily for progressive disease or is that strictly for we did a surgery, we got a three-month, six-month, whatever, MRI, and there's some leftover? Or both? So, yeah, the, the recommendation was um, definitely for progressive or recurrent disease. Um, for residual disease, which is the scenario you're alluding to, uh, it was left at the judgment of the provider. It was felt that if that disease was small, it could be observed. But uh, if it was, you know, not small, it would it should be treated up front. But we couldn't, um, in the literature, come up with a threshold for um, what's small versus not small. That that was uh, that was going to be my next question: is if there was a there's maybe a cutoff of of some sort that um, that helped delineate that. The, my other question about about what you talked about is is intraoperative MRI and in in the glioma world, you know, there's sort of mixed mixed data on, like you said, you can get higher extensive resection, but the Question will be at the impact of that on prognosis, uh, and it's you see some mixed data out there. Is 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 it similar in the non-functioning pituitary adenoma world, or is it is it very clear the more you know extent of resection has a direct is a direct correlation with outcomes? 
So uh, this ended up being um, the probably, you know, it, it's such a focused topic within one of seven chapters. And yet I have a distinct memory uh, of this being um, something that we spent a lot of time and energy on because we knew that um, uh, we needed to be objective and that, you know, there would be a lot of interest in this topic from the audience. And so the sense that we got from reviewing the literature is that the considerations were going to be a little bit different than with malignant disease, because with malignant disease, the risk benefit of increasing your extent of resection, the, the calculation changes. Um, um, and, you know, particularly in most of the intraoperative MRI studies that get cited in the glioma literature are, you know, not necessarily focused exclusively on eloquent locations. And so then you have the ability, um, if you see enhancing disease and, and to just get it out and there's no questions asked. The problem with pituitary uh, or NFPA was that image quality is such a big deal. And, you know, when you get an intraoperative image with, a, with the resolution and all that, the judgment as to what's normal gland and what's tumor, it becomes challenging. And so most of the time we were finding that in the studies that would actually take tissue resected um, after an intraoperative image was acquired, uh, when they would sample what was felt to be tumor based on intraoperative MRI, it had a high false positive rate of being normal gland. Wow. Um, and so there is definitely an extent of resection benefit for recurrence in NFPA, but it it it's not enough to, to even offset the potential of a new hormonal deficit if normal gland is compromised. So we have, we were left with an inability to recommend its use. Interesting. Rushi, let me let you jump in if you want. Sure, yeah. I just had uh, two brief questions about surgical technology um, in the OR. I think one is, you know, as we have an increasingly older population, are there any technologies um, that you feel may have enabled safer surgical resection, specifically transphenoidal? in the elderly population and especially as endoscopic surgery is more widely adopted for pituitary resection? It's a great question. Um, I suspect in, in a, we are revisiting or updating our guidelines and very soon. And you know, if I were to venture a guess, I suspect that we're gonna have even more evidence supporting um, the safety of um, transphenoidal surgery, endoscopic as you allude to for elderly patients. Um, and that it may even be a broader catchment of those patients. Previously, it was these um, low-grade ASA, you know, one to three patients. But I think there's considerable studies widening its practice into, you know, even higher age groups. But I don't know if that's necessarily due to any one specific technology as um, much as it is um, uh, just due to the increasing experience and comfort that the surgeons have. Um, you know, in the non-elderly patients, there's an active debate in the field about reducing length of stay and, you know, could transphenoidal surgery eventually be day procedure? And so you can only imagine if that's the conversation that's occurring in non-elderly patients. With el elderly patients, we've, we've managed to reduce length of stay just by reducing operative time, which is happening throughout the country. Um, and operative time is a key variable for older patients in terms of reducing postoperative delirium. Um, and so I think we're just, we're just streamlining, you know, the act, we're getting into the cella 
you know, within 30 minutes or getting the tumor out within an hour. And so I think all those things have been favorable, but I don't know that it's any specific technology. Great, thanks. And then um, just one more question, kind of starting to look forward. Um, as you mentioned, these guidelines were written, um, looking at studies up until 2014 and published in 2016. And now moving forward, as we've seen an increase in intraoperative technology, um, kind of on a personal note too, with the use of uh, stimulated Raman spectroscopy, one of my mentors here, Dr. Todd Holland, and um, Dr. Dan Oranger at NYU, who kind of piloted the use of this um, primarily for glioma surgery. Do you think as surgeons, there's a role for intraoperative tissue diagnosis, maybe one to look at specific markers like KI-67 and MIB, um, if that's indicative of a possibly uh, a tumor that has a higher predilection for recurrence? And then as you also alluded to, maybe getting intraoperative ACTH staining for uh, silent non-functioning um, adenomas. And would that guide your surgical decision-making as far as being more or less aggressive um, in the OR? It's a great question. And I think the um, when, regarding intraoperative diagnostic, um, uh, it, the sort of intraoperative pathology you alluded to with Raman, um, where I see that being even more useful would be the functional pituitary adenomas, particularly Cushing's disease, um, and, and even some microprolactinomas where we just need you know, quick confirmation. Um, the uh, for funct for non-functional pituitary adenomas, um, I, I think if there were a reliable biomarker, and um, and I think the two that came out of our series were ACTH and KI sixty seven. I I mean, I suppose it it certainly could um, uh, influence uh, the level of intraoperative aggressiveness, but. I'm not sure how much the literature would support that just because we all try to get out the maximum amount possible. And I'm not sure that there's any one variable that would push us further because generally the case ends with the most amount safely removable that the surgeon could do. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the other technology that I think wasn't at all in our 2016 publication, but would certainly be included in the next one, and I alluded to it, was the, the dyes for visualization. And it'll be interesting to see what level supports the use of those agents. Um, and, uh, and you know, th those are not just useful for tumor visualization, but many of us will routinely use them uh, to visualize the carotid uh, for big cases um, with, you know, ICG visualization. And so I think there are technologies that you know, they certainly were published about in 2016, but couldn't even make the cut because we required a minimum number of patients and, and a purity of the NFPA population. And almost certainly all of those will be added. So we're really excited to see um, where the technologies stand, you know, six years later. Awesome. That was a great. time. I wanted to bring Dr. Zada back in and just ask one last question of each of you. Uh, what What is a clinical trial that would be uh, key for helping push the field forward? Yeah, as you know, it's hard to uh, uh, implement clinical trials in, in uh, neurosurgery and subsets, but for um, I think we kind of touched on it. For me, it would be um, randomizing patients with residual non-functioning pituitary adenoma to upfront stereotactic radiosurgery versus observation until progression. Um, and there's uh, Jason Sheehan's group has published some um, compelling 
retrospective multi-center data, but um, that would, to me, justify um, uh, uh, an RCT. I, I agree completely. I mean, if we look back at 2016, the, our radiation oncology colleagues, led primarily by Dr. Sheehan, had the only sort of level two evidence that we were able to put together. And I think they're getting close to potentially being able to reach an even higher level. And then similarly, I think um, the jury is still out on sort of, you know, what to do with a, a nine millimeter or an 11 millimeter or a 13 millimeter tumor at presentation. You know, there are definitely studies about natural history, but it's hard to put that into the context of, you know, when do we operate? And, you know, we all know that when there's vision loss, it, you know, we have to rush to surgery, but the goal is to get tumors out before there's vision loss. And, and the, the decision-making around, you know, tumors as they transition to, into that macroadenoma zone, um, I don't know that there's consensus around that. I think the large centers where we know the surgeries are safe are probably operating on a fair number of those. And, or, you know, and a lot of us, when we know there may not be reliable follow-up may operate, but that's different than having high level evidence supporting the practice, which would be nice to have. Great. Well, we're uh, over our time. Uh, so I want to thank our guests, not only for joining us, but sticking with us for a little bit of overtime. Uh, and then also, of course, to thank them for their tireless work, bringing this guideline to fruition. Sounds like we're going to have an update in the not too distant future. So hopefully we can have uh, both of our authors back at some point in the future to uh, discuss what their uh, updated guidelines uh, found. For our listeners, thank you for listening tonight. Uh, please check the CNS website regularly for updated guidelines, topics, and podcasts. Rushi, thank you for joining us tonight as, as co-host. And to everybody, good night. Thank you very much.